of Mike Curtis that are not of you. Just let them fall to the ground and let the truth of Christ prevail and minister to our hearts and so encourage us, God. We ask this all in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you. Awesome, awesome, awesome. How many of you have ever seen or read the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Raise your hand. Wow, a lot of you, a lot of you. You know, I'm going to guess, and honestly, I'm just guessing, I'm going to guess, because this movie was not made for the church. This movie was was made, or the, the newer version was made, to be able to, just, just for everybody in our, in our Western culture. And I'm just kind of wondering how that movie would be viewed by the world. I, I understand how it's going to be viewed by the church, but how would it be viewed by the world? I'm going to guess that it's pro- they probably think this is a cute little story about kids? Four, four kids. Four, right? Yeah, four. I got it. Two boys, two girls, right. And that they go into a wardrobe and they come out into the, a really cool fantasy world. And it's, you know, beavers talk. Get a load of that. Um, fawns talk. Wow, really? And But there's a witch, there's a lion, and they get there through this wardrobe. And I can only imagine that they think they go into this fantasy world, and it's kind of a good versus evil type of thing, and eventually the good wins out, right? <laughs> they probably think that it also has a little bit to do with time travel, because eventually when they go in, they get old and they rain, and then when they're done, don't they find the lamppost and they go back into the wardrobe? And it's a cute little story, right? Well, church, how many of you know that it's so much more than just a cute little story, right? It is a story of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, who is portrayed by the lion, Aslan. And it's about his death, and it's about his resurrection. Now, does the world get that? I I don't know. But I can tell you right now, it is not a book about a nice little fantasy story, and it's not a book about time travel. It is a book about how Christ died and rose again for us, including these four who in the world the symbolism is that we rule and reign in Christ because of Christ. That's the story. And I think what what we need to do is sometimes we just need to look at things and see the symbolism because if we take it too literally, we get kind of lost. It's like, okay, is this a little fantasy novel? I mean, it's cute. Well, as we go through the book of Revelation, and we're only going to do that a little bit. This is not an exhaustive study going through Revelation. It's entitled, The End, question mark, because truly, though it talks about the end, at least to some degree, it is so much more than that, and the end is truly only the beginning. And that is the triumph of the Lamb. And so as we go through this, we're going to be looking more at the topic of the day of the Lord and, and all that goes on. So we're not just looking at Revelation, but we will spend some time. Tonight, you got a paper, and we're going to go over that. And it's kind of just like an overview, and that's all that I'm going to do because I want us to focus on the scroll that's found in Revelation 5 and what that means. Because if we discover the symbolism, not the literalness, it is not a literal scroll, just so you know. This is a, there's symbolism in this, and I think if we get this symbolism, the book of Revelation falls into place, and it's like, yes, that is the purpose of the book of Revelation, and I think it's going to hinge on this one little symbol called the scroll. Before we get into it, let's just, let me, let me just say right up front, this is a revelation, a revelation of Jesus Christ. It is not a book about the end times. It is not even a book about the apocalypse. That may be confusing for some of you because I grew up in the 70s. I was a teenager in the 70s. I read Late Great Planet Earth. I read How Lindsay's New World Coming. I read some of these other things. It was like, this is so cool. It's like a roadmap to the end times. And it was only as I stepped back much later in life and I began to read through it, I realized there is so much symbolism in this. And and I'm just going to throw this out there. I do not believe that Revelation is a roadmap to the end times. I believe it talks about the end times to a degree, to a small degree, but its purpose is not to be an end times, to to be a roadmap to the end times. There is so much more. The main purpose is a revelation 
of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to read the first three verses of chapter 1, and I want to get into it just a little bit, and then we're going to kind of lay some things out as, as we go along. You'll see. Are you there with me? Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The first word in Greek is apocalypsis. It is revelation. Not the revelation, but it is a revelation. You just apply the word a. So a revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. So this is about the future. What must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, lots and lots of judgment. Apocalyptic wars. Is that what your Bible says? Here's what my Bible says. The word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. I'm not saying the time of the end is near. I'm not, I don't think he's saying that. But the time of, this, of its fulfillment is near. I'm going to walk you through that, so be patient. The first word is revelation. Our problem is that we actually get our English word apocalypse from this word apocalypsis. The Greek word apocalypsis means a revealing or a revelation. It does not mean end times. Though the revealing or the revelation of Jesus Christ is often spoken of happening at the end of the age, that is why our English word apocalypse means what it does. But it just simply means events that transpire just before the end of the age that talk about the destruction of the world. So our English word apocalypse truly has nothing to do with the Greek word apocalypse. It means revelation. So I want us to realize that the first word is not apocalypse, the first word being revelation, this book is going to give us a revealing of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that really clearly tonight. And even though it talks about plagues and it talks about a beast and a false prophet and a, a woman who is considered a prostitute, and it talks about Satan's doom, this truly is the triumph of the lamb and the lion. And we're going to see that tonight. This the purpose of this is not to give us a picture of the end, but a picture, I believe, of the church age. I realize that it is very popular, it's a very popular view that the book of Revelation is basically a horror show of the destruction. You just go, it's destruction after destruction after, and as you get to the, the different trumpets and the bowls of wrath, you're wondering, can the world take anymore. We're going to sweat through that a little bit. Now, I'm just going to let you know, I, I, I truly do not want to be dogmatic in this. That's not what you need. You don't need just another version of, okay, well, I've heard about this person and this person's view, and now it's, I'm going to give my pastor a chance at it, see what he can do with it. I want you, whenever I preach from anything in this, what's called the end series, I want you to go to the word and be a good Berean. In the next 17, when Paul came to the Bereans, he preached the word, and then they dug into the word. That was the Old Testament scriptures to see if what Paul was truly saying was true. And so I'm going to ask that you do that. I'm going to share with you a perspective. I want to share with you what I believe is the word of God. Okay, I do need as much light as I can. And so I, I want you to test these things and see if they are so. Now, I want you to look now at this diagram, and, and I'm just going to, I have the diagram, I have this up here, you have it in your lap before you, and I'm going to kind of just lay out for you the outline of Revelation and then give some comments about it, okay? Because it really does seem as if Revelation is all about God's judgments. Number one, it's not, as I've just said. But I want us to see these judgments in proper perspective. They are not given as a horror show to scare the hell out of somebody. 
that is to scare them to heaven. That's not its purpose. So what we do is we're going to, from chapter 6 on, we start seeing seven seals. That's chapter 6 in a nutshell. Seven seals. These seals we're going to see because we're going to go through chapter 5 here in just a few minutes. That's where Jesus has the scroll. And this scroll that he holds in his hands has seven seals. That is probably seven bands. Because the Greek word break in my Bible literally is to untie or loosen. So I'm going to suggest they're ties. There's seven of them. But in order to open this scroll that only Jesus is worthy to do, these, these seals must be broken. The, they must be loosened. And when they open the seal, that is when they break the seal, the judgment that those seals predict or talk about happens. So here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. As, as we go through, if you read through, as you read, because I'm not going to go through it much, as you read through chapter 6, look for the word apocalypse or end time or any indication that these take place at the end of the age. Spoiler alert. Here's what you're going to find. Nothing except six. Now, when I circle something, that means that does occur from what we can tell in the context about the end of the age. So as you can see here, the first five have nothing to do with the end of the age. Can I ask, when I went to Regent University, I graduated with my MDiv there. Great school, loved it. Um, in front of their library, they had a, someone donate the four horsemen of the apocalypse and beautiful artwork really really gorgeous super super well done but the challenge though is when you look at those horsemen and I'm going to encourage you to read because I, I, I just can't cover that much does it say anywhere that they happen in the end of the age I'm going to tell you it doesn't not anywhere the four this is about conquering, this is about bloodshed, this is about famine, and this is about, um, number four is about, yeah, it, it just blew, flew away from me right there. Uh, we'll talk about it later anyway. Number five is the martyrs. Do we just have martyrs at the end of the age? I, I think Revelation scares people because when they read seal number, about seal number five and the mortars, they begin to think, oh my goodness, at the end of the age, and, and people are telling me we're at the end of the age, I am probably going to be martyred. Well, you know what, church? You may. You may, but this martyrdom, church, let me just tell you, that has happened from the time Jesus told his disciples, it's going to happen to you. Eleven of the twelve were martyred. Jesus was preparing them. They were martyred, and this has happened throughout the church age. And so I, I just need us to humbly come to this seal and recognize that is not just about me and my generation. This is about those souls that have been killed hovering around the altar, which is a symbol of sacrifice, and they gave and they sacrificed their, li their lives. To what end? For the gospel's sake, that Jesus Christ would be glorified. This is why they gave their lives. And they ask, how much longer? And all it says is soon. Can I just tell you that the devil was thrown, was kicked out of heaven in Revelation 12 at the cross. And the, and the word soon or a little time is used there as well. And that's been 2,000 years. So just a little clue. God's time is not like ours. Soon to us can mean a lot of time. So let's not just assume that this must be about the end time martyrdom. I'm going to suggest it's not. Now, when you read the sixth seal, I'm going to encourage you. Yeah, the, the sky is rolled back like a scroll. The mountains and seal number six happens at the end of the age. Actually, at the very end of the age and that's it. The world's done. Can I ask you a question? And, and I want to, I'm laying this before you. What will happen at the after the end of the age when the world is destroyed because there's yet another seal here? Can I encourage you? This is the rewind. Right after seal six, there is a rewind. And then we get into seven trumpets, and it's only the last one that has any hint of it being in the end times. It's the destruction of 
the world again. And then there's a rewind. Actually, if you were to count the rewinds in Revelation, and I can give them to you, I'm not going to give them to you tonight, I, I, I count seven, seven rewinds. Perhaps the biggest one is here. Another really big one is at the end of chapter 11. Test that, see if it's not so. I'm going to suggest there are five others. The last two, though, are very debatable, but it does help, help me anyway sort through my millennial view. Regardless, there are several rewinds. So Revelation is not just some chronological outlaying of God's judgment one after the other in the end times. It just is not. Actually, there's no chronology given for these four horsemen. It's not like one happens, even though they're ordered one, two, three, four, or first, second, third, fourth. That just means it's one vision after the other. One vision after the other. Doesn't mean that they happen chronologically. And so, the last three of the trumpets are three woes. And I'm going to suggest to you that the vast majority of these right here, the seven seals and the seven trumpets, happen in the church age. From the time that, that Christ ascended to the time he's coming back. Some of it, like here... And here, they do deal with the very end of the age, the destruction of the world. Now, I am going to suggest that the seven bulls, and, and we'll get to that when we talk about the beast, and there's probably some things about the beast that may surprise you that most people just don't point out. We need to look at that. Mark of the beast, what on earth is that? People are scared to death. Christians are scared to death in our age about they might accidentally get this chip in their hand and that's going to bound them to hell because the Bible says that everyone with the mark of the beast, be, mark of the beast, will be cast into the lake of fire. Oh my goodness, will I lose my salvation because I, I, I just God, I didn't realize I was, I didn't realize that was the mark of the beast, and I'm going to go to hell because of there's so much fear. I want to allay that fear for us. I want to, and I'm not saying that my understanding of it is perfect. Please don't, don't misunderstand. But as I have poured over this, God, just give me an ounce of understanding of this. I want to share that with you. And then, we discover that at the very end, that's when the, the, the end of the age comes. There's the destruction of the, the harlot, then there's the destruction of the beast and the, uh, and the false prophet, and then there's the destruction of Satan. I do not believe that they're in chronological order. None of this has been in chronological order. And so I want, to, I want you to test that. Mike just said that the book of Revelation is not in chronological order. Test that. See if it's not so. Mike just said that it's mostly about our age and these judgments. Test that and see if that's not so. Can you demonstrate that it has to do... So when we get into chapter 7, the 144,000, we're going to do this next week, and then the great, those who came out of the great tribulation, is the great tribulation, does it last seven years? Because that's not what the text says. We have to assume certain things. So it's, let's be fair, as fair as we can with the text. And, dis and understand this. I just think there's there's so much fear that accompanies this, even in the church. And church, after tonight, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, my prayer is that you will not see that at all. You will see truly the Lamb of God and the triumph of the Lion of Judah. So let's do that right now. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter five. I'm gonna suggest something pretty wild. I'm going to suggest that if we understand chapter 5, I think we're going to get the entire book. That's how significant this is. And if you ask most commentators, does Jesus ever open the scroll? They're going to tell you, no, he doesn't. I'm going to disagree with that. And I'm going to lay this before you. I think if we see the symbolism, just like someone would see the symbolism in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it's like, of course, there you go. And in my estimation, it, it, and it's found in like one verse, it is so powerful if we understand that, that imagery that he uses there. Because Revelation is so filled with imagery. So you're there with me. Revelation chapter 5. I'm going to start with verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 10. Then I saw, this is John, he's in, he's, his, his vision is of the throne room. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? 
no one, church, listen to this, but no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, that is, that they had died, could open the scrolls or even look inside of it. Here's John's response. I wept and wept. In the Greek, whenever you see those words repeated, that means an emphasis on weeping. He severely wept. You might step back, you might step back and just think, John, why the emotion? Why are you so overcome with emotion that no one was found? He's just going to open a scroll, dude. Come on. Really? Pull it together. This is just about the end times, right? And, and the judgments. And so what? Are, are you weeping for the loss? Or you know, why, are, why are you weeping? Like profusely weeping. We're going to need to understand that. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders, remember there's 24 of them, said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed, church. Somehow this is to give him hope that no one's worthy to look inside of a scroll. So why weep? Because the lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. We need to understand this. What is going on here? There's a lot of drama involved in this. He is able open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain standing in the center of the throne. And by the way, church, apart from the 24 thrones that surround the throne, there is only one throne in the center of heaven. There is only one throne. And God the Father sits on it and the lamb is standing in the center. They both occupy that throne. For what reason? Because not only are they both God, but they both are Savior. They both are worthy of our worship. That is why. The Lamb is not sitting. He is standing. He looked as if he had been slain, but he's standing. Do you, do you hear the resurrection in that? He's not laying down with, a, with blood all over. He's standing, even though he had been slain. So we see the cross, we see the resurrection here. Okay, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders, he had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, set out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sit on the throne. Jesus is not given the, the, the scroll. He boldly takes the scroll from his father's hand and he is now about to open it. So he takes the scroll and is right from him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding seven bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Church, listen to this. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. This is a phrase used throughout Revelation to talk about all the people on the earth, all kinds of people everywhere, not just a certain sect, not just the Jews and the Romans. This is everybody They're purchased for him. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they shall reign on the earth. So much more. I would love to read it. But just due to time, because I've got like 20 minutes or so, I want to be able to cover this. Guys, so, so very important. <clears throat> if we were to look at Revelation 4, we would be introduced to these 24 elders. We'd be introduced to the four living creatures, very similar to the creatures 
the cherubim in Ezekiel chapter 1 and chapter 10 with their faces, they're similar. They're cherubim. <clears throat> they can fly. Angels, nowhere in Scripture says, the, the Bible, nowhere in the Bible does it says angels have wings. I hope I didn't bust someone's bubble there. But angels, it just doesn't say they have wings. I'm not saying that they don't, but it's interesting. Angels is mentioned hundreds and hundreds of times. Not one time does it say they have angels, but cherubim do. And there's certain something special about these creatures. There's four of them. They worship God. They bring glory to God, to Jesus, to these two who sit on the throne. And the, the four living creatures cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and who is to come. The 24 elders take their crowns, cast them before the throne, and they begin to say that God who is sitting on the throne is worthy and much more of of course, we're introduced to these two different groups uh, of creatures, of people. What is the purpose, then, of this scroll? What is the purpose of it being bound by seven seals? Because you have to open the seals in order to read inside. So if you open a seal break it, that is, open it. If you were to look at chapter 6, verse 1, what did, in chapter 5 it says he breaks the seal. In chapter 6, verse 1, it says he opens the seal, okay? So he has to break it and, or untie it and open the seal, and then what's in the seal, whatever the symbolism is, that happens on the earth. He does this with all seven of them, and it is not until the end of that seventh seal being opened that he is now able to open the scroll. There, we see so all of these, all of these seals are judgments. The judgments must happen in order for the scroll to be opened. So, if we want to find anything about the scroll, is it ever opened? I realize many say that it's not. You'll, you be the judge of that. It should be discovered. It should be opened after what happens after the seventh seal is open. Now look at this diagram up here. Where is the seventh seal? See, it's right here. The seventh seal, however, contains seven trumpets. So technically, the, when the last seal is opened, all seven trumpets are blown. At that point, that's when we should see this scroll open. There is something so significant about this scroll. Why all the drama? Why all the thunder and lightning and rumblings? It's, it's like towards the, when a when a movie comes to a climax. You know how the the music rises and it's just it's emotional, and it's like wow, something powerful is about to happen. What is it? The lamb, he's about to open the scroll, but first he's got to undo all seven seals. And don't you think that when that seventh seal is finally broken and the scroll is opened, there's going to be another scene similar to this drama, and it's as if, here we go, all eyes on the opening of the scroll. But I'm going to tell you right now, you are not going to, we're not going to discover Jesus opening the scroll. That's not what Revelation tells us. But Revelation, what Revelation does do is that it shows us. It doesn't tell us Jesus opened the scroll. It shows us. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go at the end of the trumpets. You're going to find that in chapter 11. So go to chapter 11 if you will. Chapter 11. Verse 15 says this. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet. Here we go. He's going to sound the trumpet, and shortly after that, the scroll should be opened, or at least we're going to see it, right? And there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God. Are you beginning to get a like a, a throwback, a, a, another picture of what we were just talking about and what we read in Revelation 4 and 5? So stay with me. 
The 24 elders are seated on the thrones before God, fell on their faces, worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was. Because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. Past tense, has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets. And your servants and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the Ark of the Covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. Let's, let's just step back now. Let's, let's be good students. We're going to make some observations right now. Number one, the four living creatures. What did they say in Revelation? They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who was, who is, and who is to come. Do you see any of that in this passage that I just read to you? See, we do. This time, the 24 elders are saying it. But what do they say? They say, because you're great, excuse me, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty. That's how he's addressed, Lord God Almighty, just the way the four living creatures did. The one who was, the one who is, and who was. Is that how you read it in Revelation 4? What's missing? And the one who is to come. Why do you suppose that's missing? Church, guess what? Because Jesus has already come. They don't need to say that. Jesus, in the blowing of this trumpet, that signals Jesus has come. He has triumphed over the dragon, over the beast, over all of the earth. He has brought destruction. It's now time for judgment. He has triumphed. He is the one who was and who is. He's already come. In Revelation 4, excuse me, yes, chapter 4, verse 8 and 10, there is, they sing a song, and there's also the saying of either a declaration or a song. There's worship. Here, it's not singing, it's saying Verse 17, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty. Number, number three, I want to point out that there are loud voices. If you were to look in chapter 5, verse 12, the angels and their countless angels in loud voices declare, worthy is he to receive glory, honor, power, and so on. And here, it says right there in the very beginning, verse 15, the angel, and it says there were loud voices in heaven which said, now, all I'm doing is I'm, I'm comparing what's happening in chapter 4 and 5 with what's happening here. We're going to get to the opening of the scroll in just a moment. I want us to see that the setting is so very similar. There's 24 elders. What do they do in chapter 4? They fall down. What do they do in chapter 5? They fall down with the, with the four living creatures, and they worship. They are casting their crowns before the lamb. They bring bowls of incense. Incense are the prayers of the saints. They're worshiping God. Bow down before bowing down before with their faces on the ground. That's exactly what we see here in, in verse 16. I need to go quickly here. There's thunder, lightning, and rumblings. Just like in chapter 4, we find it here in chapter 11 at the very end. It says in, in chapter 5, verse 2, that the goal is to open the scroll and to look inside. But there was no one worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Do we see anything in chapter 11, what I just read to you, that is opened and then we look inside? Again, I'm not, he's not saying Jesus opened the scroll. He is showing us what is open. See, the temple is open. We look inside the temple now. The Old Testament temple. What was that a picture of? See, it was lots of ceremonies, all the different bits of furniture and how it was made. Was it just like a really cool way to worship God? No. It's actually mirroring the temple in heaven, but with very specific detail because the temple in the Old Testament prophesied, spoke about in picture form, Jesus Christ. It was all, the temple was all about Jesus and the plan of salvation. So church, 
wouldn't you think that if we're going to be seeing a picture of the temple, it would be a picture of Jesus. And when we look inside, what does he see? Look at there in your Bibles. What does he see? He sees the Ark of the Covenant. Go back in the Old Testament. You're an Old Testament Jew. Some, you're standing in the courtyard. And in the distance, because you can't really, you're not allowed to go into the temple because you're not a Levite. They open the doors, and you look inside. What do you see? Do you see the Ark of the Covenant? See, you don't. What do you see instead? You see a veil. You are not permitted for your eyes to fall upon that Ark of the Covenant. You are not allowed to go into that holy place because only the high priest can do it once a year. He came with censers that gave off smoke, and, and the Old Testament tells us that the smoke rose so as to mask the glory of God who is seated on that Ark of the Covenant, because that's what, that was his throne on earth. That was the very presence of God on the earth. And now, New Testament John, can, as the doors are opened, he looks inside, and now he sees the Ark of the Covenant. Why do you think that is, church? It is not insignificant that when Jesus died on the cross, what happened to the veil? It was torn in two from top to bottom, from heaven to earth. It was torn in two. And now in the New Testament, see, we can see the Ark of the Covenant, meaning we have access to the very presence of God. The God of the Old Testament, the holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That God now lives inside of me. The very presence of God now dwells in me. Peter, when he in Luke 5, after the miracle of he said, just Jesus says, just cast your net on the other side. He's a fisherman, like, yeah, right. Just remember, I'm the fisherman and you're the what do you get? He said, You're the teacher. But he did what Jesus said, took his net, threw it on the other, and it was so filled with fish it was getting it was starting to break. What did Peter do? He falls on his knees there on the boat, and he says, Depart from me, Lord. For I am a sinful man. This is why the old, in the Old Testament you could not go into the temple. And you could not even go into the Holy of Holies. Because that's the very presence and holiness of God. But what does Hebrews say? Church, we have direct access. We pray. We worship him. The spirit of God can speak and commune to your spirit. Just like he did with Adam before sin entered the garden. This is what we have access to. You've been given inheritance rights as a son or a daughter of the Most High King. This is yours at salvation. For all time, it's yours. The very presence of God now incubates you. Church, we are, if you will, the very mobile We carry around with us the aroma of Christ, the presence of God. When you go to work and you're in the midst of a sinful community, we don't play the holier than thou. Our hearts are broken because of that sin, but you are empowered as his mouthpiece now. You're not just another guy in there. God indwells you. God empowers you. God speaks to you. How, what, or, or to what end? So that you now bring the gospel, the cross of Christ, and the resurrection to this dying world so that they too may be able to gaze inside the temple and see the Ark of the Covenant. There are two manuscripts that I am aware of in the Old Testament that ever had writing on both sides and the scrolls are supposed to have writing on both sides. The one in Ezekiel 2, some suggest that that's what it is. I, I'm, I'm, just, I'm very gracious if I could. I'm going to disagree with that. The other document that has writing on both sides is what? The Ten Commandments. What's inside the Ark of the Covenant Church? It's the Ten Commandments. It's very unusual for there to be writing on both sides back in that day. Just because writing on both sides, one side would get worn off, so they preserve one and roll it up so that it's, it doesn't wear off. Church's salvation by the blood of Jesus will never wear off. It is eternal. It is ours. It gains access 
to the very presence of God. The scroll then is, is Jesus, and as we look into his life, the, the, the writing contains the fulfillment of the Ten Commandments. That's what Jesus came to do. It is the cross, so that even though I sin and I break those Ten Commandments, it is not held against me. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And as being in Christ Jesus, a believer in Jesus, there is no condemnation. The wrath of God is not poured out upon me ever again. I am free from this. So why does John weep? John weeps because he understands this key principle. Salvation of mankind is now at stake. And if nobody can open that scroll, and that scroll is the cross, that scroll is God's means for man to once again be in the very presence of of God in the Holy of Holies before his throne of grace appealing to him and having fellowship with him. That is what is at stake. It is intimacy with the Holy, Holy, Holy God Almighty. This is what's on the line. And if nobody can accomplish this, we are lost forever. And the elder says to him, John, don't weep. See? There is one who is worthy. He is the Lamb of God who died and obviously is now risen because he's standing. He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Yes, his lineage is through Judah, but he's the Lion. He's the conqueror. He has triumphed over sin and the grave. And this is the gospel. And so when we go through this book of Revelation, church, this is a revelation of Jesus we will see the gospel. So here is my question. If the, un, if the scroll is opened and we see Jesus and what he has accomplished for my salvation so that I now can be in the very presence of God, what's with all the judgments? Because the judgments have to happen. They have to be opened, happen, in order for this to be fully accomplished. If you were to look just real quickly, chapter 11, so you're just going to go back a few verses. Just a little bit. And I don't want to spend any more time on this right now. But <clears throat> Verse 6. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever. Forgive me, I'm not giving context. But who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, said, there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, see, we just heard about it. In those days in which it's about to be sounded, and, and I imagine that it, it runs prior and then a little bit after, in, those, in that time in which it's, the trumpet is blown, this, it sounded, it says here, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced, that word announced, is euangelizo, evangelized. It's fair to, to translate it in announced, but it's with this hint in the background of the gospel. Just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Can I ask you this? What is the mystery of God? We're going through so much here tonight, church. I'm, I'm sorry, we're just going like a thousand miles an hour. What is the mystery of God? It is something that was hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed by God's holy apostles and prophets. What is it? It is the gospel. That's the mystery of God. What does it mean that the mystery of God, because there's no more delay, we're about to sound the seventh trumpet, that's the end of the world, we're about to sound it, the mystery of God will be accomplished. Church, this is exciting news. So before, before this revelation of judgment, and we 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 see the pit, this picture of Jesus, and this is what the this is what it is all about. Revelation, we see just before that that the mystery of God will finally be accomplished. What is that? Romans sixteen. I'm, I'm just going to just shoot through this so quickly, church. Romans sixteen. <laughs> Some of you are going to be very familiar with this passage. If 
I can find it. Come on. And it says this. <clears throat> now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that... And that now, the word so that is this cause and effect. It's about to show us the purpose of the gospel. What is it? So that all nations might believe and obey him. That is the gospel accomplished. That is the mystery of God accomplished. All nations will believe and obey. That is God's goal. Now, I realize in first in 2 Peter 3, 9, it says, I'm not desiring that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I realize that not everyone is going to repent. Is this then just God's wishful thinking? I believe it's just the heart of God. He wants everyone to, to believe. He wants everyone to repent, but he understands that so many will not. But now when we come, the, the gospel will be accomplished. This isn't just God hoping. It will happen. And what is it? It is the salvation of the nations. It is the proclamation of the gospel throughout the world, including the 1040 window. And people aren't just saying, ah, we're just going to crucify. We're just going to kill all of you saints. Something happens, is going to happen in this world, that the gospel will take root and flourish in Iraq, in Iran, in India, and in all of these nations that persecute Christians. I believe that there's going to be this great awakening. It is the gospel. It is the mystery of God accomplished. See, this, the, the gospel is, is, it is aggressively moving forward. God has a plan with the gospel. I realize that there's going to be many at the very end when the man of lawlessness is revealed, many that will fall away, many will turn away from God. They're the ones who do not love the truth, the text tells us. I realize that there are many weeds in the kingdom of God, and they're going to certainly appeal or appear to be followers of Jesus. But when, it, when, when they're reaped, you're going to realize they were never wheat. They were just weeds. They were Dardanelle. That's the type of weed that's mentioned there in Matthew 13. And so what we see here then is this amazing accomplishment of the gospel we realize that in order for God to accomplish the gospel, he has to do something with the nations. And he must pour out judgment upon the nations and he must sift them. And so that they would be like figs falling from the trees. It will be people being shaken to the very core of their being, understanding that there is a God in heaven understanding that this God has come to rescue them and redeem them, and you will be a mouthpiece in those times of judgment. COVID virus was no exception. I want to suggest that that was, the, that was one of these four horsemen that is, and it can, the black plague that killed, what, one-third of Europe, that was another. The goal was redemptive. The goal was to shake mankind and make them realize that your life is hanging but a, on but a thread. What will you do now? Our America needs to be shaken, church. Now, I pray for God's mercy. I truly do. But don't be surprised if God brings judgment. He has done that with every cocky nation. We were founded on biblical truths. We were a Christian nation, one nation under God. Not one nation under some mysterious God that anybody can worship and your guess is as good as ours type of God. No, the God of the scripture. That is the God that our nation was, is under, supposed to be under. And we have moved so far from that. Don't be surprised if God does bring judgment. I'm not saying it's the end of the age, but this is just the nature of God. He must shake them. He must bring judgment in order for the seal, in order rather for the scroll to be opened and for people to see that's who Jesus is. And this is, God is just going to start bringing them more and more into his kingdom. And we are his mouthpieces. Here is testimony. There are two testimonies. And I'm not gonna, we'll get into it another time. Two testimonies. The testimony of Jesus 
and the testimony of the saints. Those are the two testimonies, the two testifyings in the, in the book of Revelation. It's the cross and the cross applied to your life, my life. It's your testimony. So crucial as you go through the book of Revelation, those two testimonies. Church, can you stand with me? We're going to have communion, but can you stand with me? Can we pray for America? Can we pray that God would be gracious, but there, something must happen to wake America from her slumber? Something must happen, maybe even to us, if we are asleep at the wheel, church. May God get a hold of our hearts so that we truly, we would be like John and be able to look into the temple and see the very presence of God as he's seated upon the Ark of the Covenant. That is for me, because Christ tore the veil. That's where I'm at. That's my prayer, that's my blessing. That's yours as well. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Father, there was just a lot of information tonight. And I pray, help us be good students as we sort through this. Help us, Lord. As we go through these scripture verses again and again and pray over them and say, okay, God, what is this for me? And I just pray for every single one of us. God, so burden our heart for the lost. So burden our heart for the nations that we will be, as hard as it may be at times, your mouthpiece this day. I count my life as lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. Following you, Jesus, is worth everything. It's even worth my life. And Jesus, if my life ever had to be ended for the sake of the it as you will. And I want to follow you, Jesus. I want the world to see Jesus. I want them to look into this world. I want them to see Christ crucified and raised from the dead. And I want that applied. I want them totally changed because of the gospel, which is the power.